I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Great. Yes, well, good afternoon. And um, we're going to be continuing uh, our new series in the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the earliest kind of condensed, summarized expressions of the Christian faith, which has been held uh, by all kinds of churches from all kinds of denominations across the world historically. And we are taking the series. So today is Creed 2. Um, but not the Creed 2 movie with Michael B. Jordan with his shirt off. I'm sorry. Um, Andre offered to Photoshop my face onto Michael G. B. Jordan's body. I thought that might have been all right. Um, today is Creed 2. And um, today, we're gonna, last week, we opened by looking at the first statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And today, we're going to be moving on to look at I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, and descended to the dead. We're going to do all of that bit today, right? Um, and I feel some trepidation, because although I preach often and talking about Jesus is kind of what we do, it's quite a big deal to talk about Jesus in this way. These are things that these are truths that people have died for. Uh, these are truths that lives are built on. And we've been, you know, when we were singing today, we were talking about faith. And, our, you know, our faith is rooted in knowing Jesus. So these are big things that really matter. We've got to get this right. And I hope that I can serve you today just in thinking about these things. But like always, our, our project, our intention here isn't, to let you know about Jesus, it's so that you know Jesus, right? So that we know him. Because even as we're talking about him, he's here with us by his spirit. So if you like Jesus, you're here and we're talking about you today. Help us, please. And um, also, as I said last week, these are truths that I'm declaring and explaining to you, but also I'm declaring over you, declaring to the powers and principalities. Part of what the church does is declare truth about Jesus, and there is a, there's a spiritual power to that as well. So this is for our brains and our hearts, but this is also something that we're doing in the Spirit, together as God's people. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray. Then we're going to read uh, a few verses from John chapter 1 which kind of focus on some of the things about Jesus that we're going to talk about, and then we're going to 
go through these words in the creed and see how we do. Is that all right? Heavenly Father, uh, we love you. We're here because of you. You thought of us. You created. Everything came into being through your powerful word. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the fact that everything centers on him. We thank you for, as we're going to see today, this ancient bond between father and son that predates everything and in which we find strength and confidence. And we thank you for the story of Jesus right through to Easter, to the cross, and to the breaking, the severing of that bond of love in the darkness of the soul of Jesus. And so just help us today as we look at these incredible truths. Come Holy Spirit, we pray, be our teacher. Holy Spirit of God, who has breathed on these truths from time everlasting. Breathe them into our hearts as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The great thing about this kind of thing is we're not trying to do anything new. We're talking about stuff that the church has talked about for thousands of years. So at least I don't feel any pressure to be original. I've done my joke. Um, the rest of this can just be kind of standard, right? Um, here we go. So we're going to read a few verses from... Uh, John's Gospel, John 1, 1, well-known verses. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we saw last week that the Bible, the creed starts where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And um, John here, when he writes his gospel, he's doing something very courageous very radical. He's reframing these first words of the Bible, in the beginning God, and he's putting Jesus into them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is taking his friend, Jesus, who he's got to know and eaten food with, and been on a journey with, and watched die, and seen the resurrection. He's taking his friend, Jesus, this man, And he's reframing the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of history, and the fundamental belief about God, and he's putting Jesus in there with him. That's like a huge thing to do, right? And um, this is what we're going to investigate today. When we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, what, what are we proclaiming? What are we saying? And we're going to go through these statements today, kind of phrase by phrase, and just try and understand them. So the first bit is, I believe in Jesus Christ. And this is the name of this person. It's not his first name and his surname. His passport didn't have surname Christ, first name Jesus. Um, Jesus was his name, and Christ is the title that is given to him in Scripture, right? Now, the name Jesus, and for for some of you this will be really familiar. For others this might be new, that's okay. Um, The name Jesus in Hebrew... Uh, Yeshua means God 
saves. That's what his name means. What's your name? Hello, my name is God saves, <laughs> right? But what's wonderful about this is it is it, Yeshua is using the, the particular covenant name of God that was revealed to his people in the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah, the I am saves. So there were other names that, that are God saves. So Elisha, Elishua, that's, that means God saves, but it uses the general name for God, uh, Elohim, El, God, God generally saves, all right? But the name of Jesus is the covenant God saves. He's always promised to, he's always said he was going to come and save, and now he's doing it in this person, okay? Christ, his title, means anointed one. So someone who has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. On them. So even in his name, right? Even in his name, Jesus Christ, what we see is we see that the covenant God, the Father, sends this person, his son, in flesh to save in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So even in his name, we see Father, Son, and Spirit involved in the project of, as we heard in Kathy's prophetic word, running after, pursuing humankind in order to save us, like the waves on the beach that we can't get away from. And so we see, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. And this is the phrase that we've really got to wrestle with a little bit. This is the bit that makes us different as Christians around the world, whether Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant, makes us different from people like Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons, we disagree on what it means to say that Jesus is God's only son. So it's important that we get this right, okay? And the question has to be, you know, I'm a father, I have a son, but there was a time when I didn't have a son and I wasn't a father. And then when I was 23, I had a son and I became a father, right? The question is, is there a time when the son wasn't and is there a time when the father wasn't a father, therefore? So in other words, if Jesus is the only begotten son, is there a time when he was begotten? Was there a time when he wasn't begotten? And that's one of the questions. Does that make sense? Begotten isn't a very normal word. You know, I just found out someone is pregnant. I'm not going to point them out. And um, you don't say to them, oh, are you looking forward to begetting your child? You know, it's just not something that we really do in English. But... You know, this thing of like bringing forth life, is there a time when the father didn't bring forth the son? Bef it, was there a time before this father-son bond existed? And the answer for Christians is no. There was never a time when God wasn't father, and there was never a time when the son was not the son. So God the Father and God the Son have existed in this relationship of Father and Son since before the beginning, eternally, anciently. There was never a time when that relationship did not exist. Now, there's been arguments about this in history. There was a famous bishop uh, in North Africa, in Alexandria, called Arius, and um, he stood up one day, he wrote some books, he did some teaching, and he used this phrase, there was a time when he was not. 
So in other words, he was saying there was a time when Jesus was not. And um, one of the young, he was like a really important bishop and he was making this teaching. And one of the young deacons in his church, bless him, <laughs> Athanasius, was like, no, that, that's, that's not okay. That's not what we see in the Bible. That's not what we believe about Jesus. Kind of stands up and goes, objection. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't agree. And it became this really big deal. And they gathered all of the bishops from across the world to come together and to lock themselves in a room and to really kind of wrestle this out. And they ended up, out of 318 big bishops, 312 sided with our little guy, Athanasius. And only a few sided with Arius. And it was kind of decided from now on, throughout, this was in the 4th century, right? From now on, throughout the Christian story, until Christ comes again, this is a battle that's been fought and won, and we will hold that the, the Father and the Son were eternally in relationship, and there was never a time when that relationship did not exist. There was never a time when Father was not Father. There was never a time when Son was not Son. And we're going to see, as we get to the end of this thing about Jesus, and we look at the cross and his death for us, we're going to see why that matters so much. Okay, This isn't just a philosophy lecture. This is something that we can build our lives on. Um, also, as a little aside, during that meeting, one of the bishops got so angry that he jumped up and he ran across to Arius. You, sorry, I don't mean for you to be the, the heretic. I, just, I, need to, I needed to pick someone. <laughs> ran across to Arius and he slapped him because he was so angry. And, and that bishop's name was St. Nicholas. Right? St. Nicholas, from whom the legend around Santa Claus, Father Christmas, comes. So basically, if you get this wrong, Father Christmas is going to slap you. <laughs> it matters. And it's important because God is revealed to us as Father through Jesus Christ. And so... If there's no revelation of God outside of Jesus Christ, then God is not Father. He's just, you know, I believe in God, Father Almighty. He's just Almighty. And that's problematic to talk about God as just Almighty and not Father. Hitler used to talk about God as Almighty all the time. He used to appeal to the Almighty. But there was no love of the Father and constraining grace of the Father in the, in the understanding of Hitler, okay? And so Michael Reeves, he says this, if there was once a time when the son didn't exist, then there was once a time when the father was not yet a father. And if that is the case, then once upon a time, God was not loving, since all by himself, he would have had nobody to love. And it's fundamental to us to know that God is loving, And, as we're going to see, the stronger the bond, the deeper the pain when it's broken, which is where we're going to get to on the cross. And then, just briefly as well, so we've seen the Son as eternally begotten. We're also going to see the Son as the representative of the Father. So when Jesus is in the world and he's talking to people about being the Son of God, 
the language he's using is he's saying, I'm here to represent my father. You can't see him, but you can see me. They say, show us the father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus came to make the invisible one visible. That's important because we can't see God. So how do we know what he's like? Well, we look at the life of Jesus. Word made flesh. How does God feel about injustice? Well, look at how Jesus felt about injustice. And you'll know how God feels about injustice. Right? How does God feel about sin? Well, look at how Jesus spoke about sin. And you'll know how God feels about sin. And so, now Hebrews puts it like this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And as a little aside, he also upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, now, the word imprint here is like the stamp that they would put on a coin, right? So they'd have a little bit of metal, and they want to put the emperor's face on the coin. They'd have a stamp with the emperor's face on it, and they would stamp it into the metal, and everyone would see the emperor. So the, the face on the coin looks exactly the same as the face on the stamp, right? Imprint. And that's the word that's used here. So what it's saying is God is like this. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He looks exactly like God looks like in his character, in his love, in his justice, in his actions. Look at Jesus and you'll know what the God is like. And so that's why Jesus said things like, 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the way you relate to the Son is the way that you're relating to the Father. So I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, the Mormons believe that Jesus is the, the Son of God, but he's the literal son of a sexual union between God and Mary. They say, if you're going to have a son, you need to have a father and a mother. And so God and Mary had sex, and they had a son. And that's why the Christian church around the world has said Mormonism is not Christianity. Because of their position on Jesus. Um, so they're denying this phrase in the creed that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And um, what we read in Luke is this. Mary, the angel says to Mary, you are going to be pregnant and you are going to have a son. And you're going to call him Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in Jesus' life, we have an entry miracle and an exit miracle that are fundamental to our faith. And the entry miracle is that he is born from a virgin, miraculously, that he didn't have a human father. That a miracle happened where the Holy Spirit 
overshadowed Mary and she conceived even though she'd never had sex with a man. And she was pregnant and she gave birth to him. That's the entry miracle. The exit miracle is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and then the ascension into heaven. But that's a spoiler alert because that's not till next week, right? The entry miracle and the exit miracle are fundamental for Christianity. You, it, these are things that are in the creed that Christians have held around the world for 2,000 years. Even if it doesn't fit our science, and it obviously doesn't fit our science, they are fundamental faiths for us. So I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. How about you? And the virgin birth establishes a couple of things for us. The first is that Jesus was human. He was born from a human mother. He was in the womb for nine months. Then she had labor pains, and she probably didn't rush to A&E because there wasn't an A&E, but there was the pain of labor starting, and then there was the waters breaking, and then there was blood coming out and mess and an umbilical cord to cut. All of that happened. And so he was born in a human way. And psychologists tell us that babies are born screaming because birth is traumatic because you're coming from a lovely, warm, cozy, safe place out into this big, scary world. And uh, Jesus was born like that too. He went through the trauma of that journey down the birth canal and out into the scary world, right? It was more traumatic than yours because he wasn't in A&E with bright flashing lights and there was probably like a donkey and a cow in the corner too, right? And so it establishes Jesus is fully human. But it also establishes for us, this belief, this doctrine, establishes for us that Jesus was sinless. Because the way the Bible talks about sin being passed on from generation to generation, from Adam and Eve through the human family is that it's passed on from Adam to his sons, Cain and Abel. And then it's passed on from them to their sons. And so sin is passed on through the human family, tracing its way all the way back to Adam and Eve. So sin comes from inside us, but actually it's more fundamental than that. It's, it's in our very nature because it's washed into us through the brokenness of the human race, which is why no one has ever been exempt from sin. But Jesus didn't have a human father, and so he's the first person to ever be born on the planet without a human father, and so he's the first person to ever be born on the planet without inherited sin. And that's why the scripture declares over and over again that he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's sympathetic, he gets the pain of being human, he gets temptation, but he has not sinned. And Jesus' mother then went on to have other children, as we read about in Mark, and so he, he, Jesus does have other brothers and sisters. The Catholic Church holds the perpetual virginity of Mary, but the scripture is very clear that that's not true because she goes on married to Joseph, has other children who end up being the brothers and sisters of Jesus. So 
We've got Son of God becomes Son of Man in order that we sons of men might become sons of God. And, and the creed then continues that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Poor Pontius Pilate gets a bad rep all the time. Uh, but what this tells us and why it's important is it tells us when it happened in history. Because you can go to your secular historians, and we'll see some in a moment, and they will talk about the Roman governor within these years in history, in a real place in Palestine, who was the governor, and in, in the decrees that he made, one of them was the decree for the death sentence for Jesus. So it takes this out of kind of mythology and ideas, and it puts it into real history in a real place at a real time under a real Roman governor. And then we read... And I know we're doing like the whole of Jesus in a really condensed version. That's what we're doing because we've got to get to Easter for next week, right? He's got to die and be buried so that Sean can not bring him to life again. But you know what I mean? <laughs> Go on, Sean. Ra celebrate his resurrection next Sunday. So, was crucified. Now, crucifixion was many things. But crucifixion was torture. The point of it wasn't just execution. You could hang people or behead people. The point of it was a deterrent, a public way of killing someone that went on for so long and hurt so much without actually killing the person, drawing it out in order to deter other people from such crimes. Uh, and the Romans were experts in this because they were experts in stamping their iron boots down all over the world and forcing people to submit to them. And the way they did that was if anyone poked their head up, they would make a display of them. And it was, people didn't mind dying for a cause, dying for my nation or whatever. But the Romans tortured people so badly through crucifixion that even the bravest person of like, I'll die for this cause, was like, but let me die quickly and clean. Let me not die like that. It's unmanning. It's, it's, it's abasing. It's, it, it goes on for so long, like just let it end. That's crucifixion. But also crucifixion was public. The whole point of crucifixion was it's public. That's why they would do crucifixions at moments like when Jesus was crucified, it was the Passover festival when there was Upwards of two million people have come from all over the nation into the city of Jerusalem. They, they do it on purpose because we want everybody to see. Because the whole point is it's a public humiliation and execution. Right? So when Jesus died, there were literally tens of thousands of people that saw it. God so arranged the death of Jesus that there would be literally tens of thousands of witnesses that saw his death, so no one could deny that it happened. It's like when they executed Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and they did it on live TV, because people needed to know that he was dead. And that's why even non-Christian historians mention the death of Jesus. So we're just going to see a couple here. Josephus, he's a historian, wasn't a Christian. He says this, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. 
He was one who performed surprising deeds and who was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. So this secular historian says, there's a man called Jesus, and Pilate the governor sentenced him to death on a cross. And then there's a Roman historian called Tacitus, who said Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So crucifixion was public. And then also thirdly, crucifixion was shameful. It wasn't just painful. It was, one, it was reserved for the worst types of people. Upstanding citizens who did something wrong weren't crucified. It was reserved for kind of the worst things, murderers, runaway slaves. Um, it wasn't for normal people. And the humiliation of the cross is the reason that Islam, that Muslims, can't accept that Jesus died on the cross. Because they say, and the Quran says, how could God allow one of his prophets, someone who he had sent to experience something so humiliating, so shameful? God would not allow that kind of shame to be brought upon himself. And then we read, so he was crucified. Then the creed is very clear, and our faith is very clear, that he died. And so the evidence is very strong that Jesus actually died. The soldiers whose job it was, who had executed a lot of people, weren't in any doubt that they had executed Jesus. But why is it important for us that Christ dies for our sins? Well, firstly, because sacrifices die. So the sacrificial system worked like this. I've done something wrong, um, but I'm going to get an animal, like a little goat, lay hands on it. The transfer of my guilt is from me to the animal. Then I'll kill the animal, and my guilt has kind of gone, and I'm free. The problem is I'm going to do something wrong again tomorrow, and I'm going to need another goat. You know, So it gets impossible to sustain. But the Bible talks about Jesus as the perfect sacrifice once for all. But also because the penalty for sin is death. And so the Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so sin, little sins lead to big sins, and big sins lead to rebellion against God, which leads to death. And we end up needing the penalty of death to be paid. And so it's important that Jesus doesn't just suffer, but dies to pay that penalty. But then also because death is an ending, it's a way out. And so the Bible is very clear that we, in faith, end our old lives in the death of Jesus so that we're free to start a new life with him. And so we read in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because one who's died has been set free from sin. And then we read he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And um, I think the wonder of this 
is that Jesus, who was involved in creating the earth, is buried into the very earth that he was involved in creating. You know, it was his idea to create caves, and then his dead body is placed in a cave. And um, he's planted in the earth for the redemption of the earth, because the death of Jesus isn't just a kind of spiritual idea, but it's going to raise humans who come from dust, and it's going to raise the whole planet to be renewed and restored. And I, I think it's a little bit like that famous gospel story, Jack and the Beanstalk, where Jack comes home and he goes to his mum, 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 look, I've got magic beans. <laughs> and his mum goes, what a load of rubbish, and she throws them out the window. And they fall into the ground. But then overnight, when no one's looking, they grow up to become this plant that reaches up to heaven, right? And in the same way, Jesus is thrown out. He's treated as rubbish by the rulers of this world. He's buried. But actually, the burial of Jesus is the planting of the seed of eternal life into the soil of our world. And his resurrection will be a plant that reaches up to heaven, creating new life. And then we read, finally, he descended to the dead. And we've got to ask the question, he died and was buried. What does it mean that we then say he descended to the dead? Or in old translation, he descended to hell. And this is one of the harder bits to understand in the creed. Um, so bear with me just for a couple more minutes. And then we're going to kind of land by singing to Jesus and reflecting on his story. And we've covered a lot of ground in a short piece of time. I know that. But some people really struggle with the idea that Jesus kind of was died, buried, and then descended to hell. What does that mean? What do we understand by that? Or descended to the dead. But it's ancient, and it's important, and it's in the creed, so we can't just dismiss it. What did the fathers mean by it all those years ago? Well, I... I um, I think I, I want to summarize it by, by saying this. I don't think hell is a location on a map that you can kind of, oh, how do we get to hell? It's this way. I think it's a state of being which has the abandonment by God and the suffering of soul torment, if you like, the father turning his face away from that place, from that experience. And Hell will be like that ongoingly forever, a lived out torture of abandonment and being out in the cold. You know, I said last week, if God is weather, he's Mediterranean weather because he's always sunshiny. I think the exception to that is actually hell, this place God's present everywhere, but he's not present there. And our understanding is that Jesus didn't just suffer in his body for sin, didn't just die in the flesh for sin, but that his soul, even beyond that, suffered abandonment by the Father. And so this most ancient, strongest of bonds from which all of life originates, the Father-Son bond in eternity past, this overflow of love from the Father to the Son, uh, the, the kind of fountain of love out of which all life happens, out of which the universe was created and the cosmos came to be, this, this overflow of love that's original and substantial and has always, always, always been there, 
in this moment is rent. In this moment is broken. And the father turns his face away and a cloud passes between the sunshine of the love of the father and the eternal son. And so Jesus doesn't just suffer in his body and in his flesh, but he suffers in his soul in the torment of hell because he came to save us not just from sins and pain in the body, but he came to save us from the fruit of sin in our eternal souls. And so if, if Christ had only suffered in the body, he only could have redeemed us from the fruit of sin in the body. But he suffered in soul in order to redeem us from the eternal torment of hell. And John Calvin, the Swiss theologian, he said this. After explaining what Christ endured in the sight of man, that's death and burial, the creed appropriately adds the invisible an incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God to teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption, but there was a greater and more excellent price that he bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined man. So I'd like to invite please the band just to come. And please just stay with me for a moment. The kind of the journey of Jesus that we've seen today, and I appreciate it's summarized and very condensed, but what can you do? We could talk about him forever, right? But I've tried to show you that he is eternally son to the eternal father, that this love, this bond, is not only the strongest thing imaginable in all history, but it's the, it's the origin of all life. It's the reason that, that everything came into being. So you ask the question, why am I here? It's because the Father loved the Son in eternity past. And the love just overflows into creation. And this love has caused the Father to send his Son into the world, born of a virgin. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Because God knows it's hard to relate to an invisible concept. So he gave us someone to touch and see and experience this person, Jesus, the imprint of the Father. Who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to, to join us, to invite us into that bond of love. But, but our, our sin has brought us to such a dark place. And the, the eternally righteous God would have such a punishment for our sin eternally. There's such torment that comes out from inside us that Jesus' death is even followed by this descent of the personhood of Jesus into the place of the dead and this rending of this most ancient of bonds between the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he can't imagine being forsaken by the sunshine of the love of his Father. And he does it because of his love for us. He does it because of his love for you. He does it to reach you, to knock through the, the kind of insensible stubbornness of our lives where it's just like, I just, I want lunch, I'm busy, I'm working, I'm doing this. And he's like, come on, how much do I love you? And, and, and the agony that Jesus is feeling on the cross is the, the overflow 
of his passion and his love for us. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever doubt his love. Don't ever doubt that he's got you. Don't ever doubt that he's got your best interests, that he's pursuing you, that he's running after you. Don't ever doubt the power of his salvation. He can rescue his son from the depths of hell. He can rescue you in his son from the depths of despair. Let's stand, please.